Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, as you may know, our senior pastor, David Flowers, is on vacation. At least we hope that's where he is and hasn't been thrown in jail or anything like that. I don't really know. Uh, he hasn't texted me yet today, so there's time. But we are pleased to welcome the Reverend Dr. Phil Thorne with us this morning. I am a faculty member and a worship ministries pastor, and among the things that I try to educate my students about is the power of lyric tied to music and its impact on the human soul and the way that we can remember those things. And for many of us, it's hard for us to remember sermons as well as songs. Well, I have sat under the teaching and preaching ministry of Phil for over a couple of decades, and I can tell you that Phil is the kind of person who breaks that mold of the preaching pastor. There is something about the way that God's Word is wed with the imagination, the good gift of imagination and intellect to help us to recall and deeply ingrain the truths of God. Who is Phil? Phil is the father of Rachel and Adam Leitner, grandfather to their kids. They've been a part of our church for a number of years. He was the senior pastor at West Shore Evangelical Free Church for over 20 years, and most recently the interim senior pastor of Park Street Church in Boston. He's on the faculty at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's held teaching posts at Messiah, at Biblical Seminary, LBC Grad School, and more. And he's per perfectly capable of taking over if David Flowers is, in fact, in jail. <laughs> I don't think he is. It, it will probably cease to be funny at some point. <laughs> Phil and his wife, Cindy, recently returned to the area. They live a stone's throw from the Yellow Breaches, where Phil can go and do some of his beloved trout fishing. Unfortunately, they also live a stone's throw from the railroad tracks, which keeps them up at night, <laughs> occasionally. Seriously, we are very privileged to have you with us, Phil. Please join me in welcoming Phil Thornton. You know, I was really enjoying this service, being blessed by it, until that introduction. <laughs> There's something strange about introductions in a worship service. But, um, but thanks, Doug. I really do appreciate what you said, even if I prefer it not being said in the worship service. Um, <clears throat> why don't you take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. 
Uh, I plan on preaching through most of Mark chapter 6, but I'm not going to um, read the whole thing to you. Uh, I want to focus instead uh, on the verses that begin with um, verse 46 of Mark chapter 6. So I'll read Mark chapter 6, verse 46 through 52. And you can follow along with me as I read. Immediately, that's immediately after he performed the miracle of feeding more than 5,000 with five loaves and two little fish. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Father, our desire this morning is first to worship You, to thank You and praise You for all You have done and are doing and will do in our lives. And our desire is also to hear from You through Your Word. So I ask that You would soften our hard hearts, that You would open the eyes of our heart so that we might be enlightened, that You would send Your Spirit in power so that we hear from You, from You. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to begin this morning by asking you to try to picture in your mind's eye what is happening in this passage. Jesus has just made His men get in the boat by themselves without Him to row to a little village called Bethsaida, which is four, about four miles on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And these seasoned fishermen who had spent their whole lives on this very lake could row that four miles in a couple of hours if all was going well. But all wasn't going well, was it? No, a storm had risen, and apparently it's a violent one because the disciples are struggling. They're, they're pulling and pulling on the oars, rowing against the wind. And by the fourth watch in the night, that's between three and six in the morning, these men have been rowing in that lake for hours and hours against that fierce wind, and they've only made it somewhere into the middle of the lake. It just so happens that this long night at sea comes at the end of a rather difficult week in the disciples' lives. And the rest of Mark chapter 6 tells that story. And since I've had a week to read and digest that story, 
I'm going to fill you in. It all began when Jesus sent his disciples out two by two to preach and heal in the villages of Galilee. He sent them out with no money, no knapsack full of provisions. Instead, he told them to depend upon the generosity of the people in those villages. But Jesus also warned them that they would meet opposition because their message was a hard one. Repent, they were to say, for the kingdom of God is coming. And while they were on that mission, some news began to spread throughout the land of Israel, news that John the Baptist had just been beheaded by King Herod. Now, you have to understand how this news would have affected these particular men. Because some of the disciples had been followers of John before they began to follow Jesus. So they knew John personally. They knew he was a fearless and powerful prophet of God. And here they were, preaching the message that had just cost John his life. Now think about that. They're away from Jesus. That They're on their own. They don't have any money. They're not where Jesus can apparently protect them. And they're preaching a message that could cost them their lives. Now, I call that just a little bit stressful. And when these, these men finish their mission and they return to Jesus, they're worn out. They are physically and emotionally exhausted. So Mark tells us in verse 31 of chapter 6 that there are so many people around Jesus that His disciples can't even eat let alone get some rest. And Jesus sees this, and so he turns to his disciples, and he says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. Let's get some rest. Ah, rest. So, so they get into the boat, and they row to a place where no one lives, a remote place. But th- th- there's a problem. Some of the people see Jesus going, and they run around the lake ahead of them, and they're waiting for Jesus and his disciples as soon as they hit land. And I can just, I can just hear the disciples thinking, oh, Jesus, would you please send them away? You said we needed rest. We came here for rest. But when Jesus says, sees the crowd, it says in Mark 6, 34, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus sets aside His plans for a day of rest with His disciples, and He spends that day shepherding these needy people, teaching them the life-giving truths of God, giving them food for their souls, if you will. And then late in the day, the disciples finally come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, please send the people away. I mean, we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. They're tired and hungry. and There's no place to get any food. And I'm guessing what they were thinking because I would have been thinking this. And we're tired and we're hungry too. And what happened to that rest that you promised us? But if you know Mark 6, then you know what happens next. Jesus' most famous miracle, 
He he feeds the whole crowd, more than 5,000 of them, with a little boy's meal, five cakes of barley flour and two little fish. And then after that, he, he puts his disciples in the boat alone to row to the other side. See, it's, it's after that that the storms rise and the winds begin to blow. It's after that, those challenging and exhausting weeks of ministry, and after that very long, hard day, that these men have to row for hours and hours against the wind. So, here's my question. Have you ever been there? I used to cr- run cross-country in high school. Now, it's been a long time. But, but I can still remember being exhausted to the point of feeling sick. I mean, we'd, we'd run 12 quarter miles under 70 seconds with a quarter-mile jog in between, and I thought the workout was over. But from the coach's perspective, that was just a warm-up. So with a little grin on his face, he said, Okay, boys, let's hit the hills. I thought I was going to die. I mean, racing up foothills in 100-degree Arizona heat with, with nothing left inside, it, it's like, it was like rowing against the wind. But that was mere physical exhaustion. Life since high school has brought deeper days of weariness, like the year Cindy and I thought our world was falling apart. I was on staff at a church that was spinning out of control, and as one pastor after another left, I was given responsibility for their ministry. To to my responsibility for adult education, first they added children's ministry, and then youth ministry, and finally business administration. I mean, the stress was so severe, I was having nightmares at the ripe old age of 26. And then things got worse. There was a family crisis that I won't even go into, but it turned our emotional world upside down. And that was 1984. And then there was 1990. Another crisis in our family forced us to move home from Cambridge, England, where I was studying. And so back home, I was trying to finish my doctoral dissertation while working a graveyard shift at the gas station. Cindy would be working during the day. I would be working at night. We lived in a 600-square-foot apartment with two little girls. And we were so financially challenged that the girls got subsidized lunches at school. But I could go on. I could talk about the year 2008. When the church I, I pastored had, had to left, let four staff members go, and, and I couldn't sleep night after night. I, I could talk about dark nights of the soul I have spent over pastoral care concerns or church discipline or crises in the lives of people I dearly love. Or I could talk about the wilderness journey of the last few years, in some ways more difficult than all the rest life-threatening illnesses, months and months of joblessness, moving three times in one year, and then stepping into the leadership of a large inner-city church that was in the midst of a crisis like I have never seen before in a church. But, But here's my point. 
There have been days in our life, and sometimes it's been day after day after day, when all I could do is put one foot in front of the other to keep going on. And I know some of you have been there as well. In fact, some of you may be there today. You're, you're rowing against the wind. You're rowing against the wind with a son or daughter because they're headed in a direction that is breaking your heart, but they can't see it. And some days you're just going through the motions. I mean, going to work, coming to church, doing chores around the house, but inside you're dying. Or, or perhaps you're rowing against the wind in your marriage. No one knows what you're going through, what you face, how hard it is. You're just rowing, rowing, rowing against the wind. And maybe it's a, a friend who has let you down or, or perhaps even betrayed you. Maybe you're rowing against the wind at work. You're pulling against mounting pressures. You're, you're straining against draining relationships, fighting a sinking feeling of de depression. And it seems like you're getting nowhere. And let's admit it, this, this season of coronavirus has not helped. I mean, the isolation, the financial uncertainty, the, the unbelievable political turmoil, and for some of us, even loss of a loved one. And when the winds rage and the sea billows roll, when we find ourselves rowing against the wind, sometimes we wonder what those disciples must have wondered that dark night so long ago. Where are you, Jesus? Where are you? Don't you see our struggles? Don't you care how hard it is down here? I mean, why did you send us out here into this mess? You knew there was a storm ahead. You always know. And, and you knew how tired we were. You said so yourself. And just about then, Jesus, who, who's been watching and praying up on that mountainside, comes walking on the water. And the disciples, they, they think they're seeing a ghost, so they cry out in fear. But, but Jesus says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, the wind stops, and the waves die down, and they are completely amazed. And make no mistake, if you were there, you would be too. But I want you to notice what Mark says in the last verse I read to you, Mark chapter 6, verse 52, you can look at it. The disciples were completely amazed. That's verse 51. For they had not understood about the loaves. You, you see, they missed it. The, the disciples missed it. They, they missed the whole point of the feeding of the five thousands. And there on the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of the night, it's deja vu all over again. And so we don't make the same mistake. But let's go back to that miracle on the edge of the sea. Back to the, to the very moment when the disciples came up to Jesus and said, please, send them away. 
Do you happen to remember what Jesus said to them? It's recorded in verse 37 of Mark chapter 6. Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. (laughs) Come on, Jesus, what do you mean? how, How are we supposed to do that? I mean, it would take eight months' wages to feed all of these people. And even if we had eight months' wages, there's no place around here to buy food. I mean, what what do you expect us to do? Now, they weren't quite that disrespectful. That's what I would have said. But what did Jesus expect them to do? Well, Well, I think Jesus expected them to learn a lesson. It's what I call the lesson of the gap. You you see, the purpose of Jesus' command, you feed them, was not to send them scurrying for food or to pull out their calculators and, and tally up how much it would take to feed all these people. No, the purpose of Jesus' demand was to bring the disciples face to face with the impossibility of their situation. He did it, I think to put them in a gap, an unbridgeable gap between what Jesus was commanding them to do and what they were able to do with their own resources. And if you stop and think about it, that is precisely what Jesus had been doing in the disciples' lives in those weeks leading up to that climactic day and night. I mean, He had sent them out into a dangerous world to preach and to heal on their own, not not knowing what they would eat or where they would sleep or how they would keep themselves safe or even whether they would be able to heal. And then he sent them out into a world where a beloved hero, a mighty man of God, had just been beheaded. And then he sends them to feed 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two little fish. And finally, Jesus sends them out to row against the wind all night long. Time and time again in Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends his disciples into a gap, into a place where they become acutely aware of the fact that they don't have the money or the strength or the skill or the power to do what needs to be done. And why? I mean, why would Jesus do that to his beloved disciples? I mean, you do realize, don't you, that, that Jesus could have calmed that storm much earlier. I mean, he was up there on that mountain praying to his Father in heaven. He he saw what was happening down below, and he could have made it all go away. I mean, the end of the story shows that well enough, but he didn't. And and why didn't he? Well, I, I think it's because there are lessons learned in the gap that can usually be learned in no other way. It's in the gap, for example, that we learn to trust in God. And I mean really trust in God. You see, there are two sides to trust. And the first side is learning that we need to trust, and that's actually harder than it sounds. 
Because there's something deep within grown-up human beings that doesn't trust very easily. See, we usually have to be put in a position where we must trust before we're willing to trust. Let me give you an example. I mean, we can say that we trust God with our finances. That's not very hard to say. I can even say that my tithe, my decision to give 10% or more of my income is a sign that I trust God, and it is. But do you know when we really trust God with our finances? When there isn't enough. When we lose our job, or the bottom drops out of the market. Or we have to send a child to college and the money is running out. See, when a gap opens up between what we need and what we have, and we can't quite bridge the gap ourselves, that's when we really need to trust in God. So the first side of trust is learning that that I need to depend on God. And the second side is learning that I can depend on God. I can depend on God to meet my every need. It's been 20 years since I led West Shore Free Church through a major building project. And I have to tell you, it did me a world of good to go through that project during the season in our life when we had to send our girls to college because the two simply did not fit together paying the bills, sending our daughters to college, and giving to the building above and beyond our tithe. We just didn't have the resources to do both. There was a gap. But it was in that gap I learned to trust in God. And it was also in that gap that that I experienced the empowering presence of God in a whole new way. I mean, I I will always remember that dark night of the soul when I was wrestling with God, deep into the night. I mean, how am I supposed to fulfill my obligations to the church? I cried. I mean, how how am I supposed to do what I'm calling other people to do, to give above and beyond their tithe? How can I have any integrity and yet send my daughters to college? I was frustrated. The truth was, I was angry. And and, at about two in the morning, I I heard a voice that I took to be the voice of God. Twice this voice asked me, will you trust me? Will you trust me? End of discussion. (laughs) I, I got up off my knees and I went to bed. And and over the next few years, God proved himself supremely worthy of my trust. He provided for our family in ways that we had never imagined. And, And my faith grew. See, it was in the gap between God's call upon their lives and the disciples' ability to fulfill that call that they experienced the power of God. I mean, they they saw demons cast out and people healed at their touch as they preached through those villages of Galilee. They they saw their physical and financial needs met by God through the generosity of people they didn't even know. 
They, they saw 5,000 people fed off a little boy's lunch with 12 baskets left over. That's one for each disciple, a, an unforgettable object lesson. I mean, they even saw Jesus walking on water, stilling the winds and the waves. And God is always at work, supplying our needs, filling our lives with bounty, conforming us into the image of His Son, building His church so the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. God is always at work. And if God were to stop working, even for a moment, the whole universe would fly apart at the seams. Because as Paul says, he holds all things together by the word of his power. I mean, that's the truth. But, but it's also true that we often do not realize God is at work until we find ourselves living in a gap. God puts us in a gap, rowing against the wind so we can learn to trust in him. And God puts us in a gap so we can experience His empowering presence in a way that we will never forget. And finally, God puts us in a gap so He can do His deepest work in us. Because there's a kind of lesson learned when a problem is solved in a matter of days, and then a different kind of lesson learned and character formed when the challenge grinds on month after month and year after year. One of my favorite teachers, Haddon Robinson, once told a story about a man watching a logger in Italy a long time ago when they still used rather primitive means for logging. And as he tells this story, the cut logs were drifting downstream and this logger who was standing on, on a platform, he, he would occasionally reach out with a long pole that had a metal hook on the end, and, and he'd grab one of those logs, and he'd pull it away from the rest, and he'd guide it into an alcove along the river. And, and after watching him do this for an hour or so, the, the observer was curious. He wanted to know, what was he doing? And when he asked, this was the response. All these logs probably look the same to you, the logger said, but they're not. See, the logs that I let pass that flow on down the stream to the mill below, they're, they're the typical ones. They have normal grain. And we use those logs for common purposes, like cutting framing boards and making shelves. But the few logs that I pull aside come from high up on the mountain where the winds blow and, and the weather can be quite fierce. And the constant pressure of those winds causes the trees to grow more slowly. And that gives them a, a, a more dense, fine grain. And so we pull those logs out and we use them for special purposes, like making fine furniture, crafting pieces of art. Well, may, may I suggest to you that, that the deepest work of God and the most beautiful qualities of soul are born out of adversity? That they come from rowing against the wind a long, 
long time. I mean, test me on this. Think of the people you most admire, that, that most reflect the qualities of Christ. I mean, have they not suffered? Have they not rode against the wind? Think of the marriages that, that are most worthy of imitation. I mean, two beautiful, deeply grained souls have become one, rowing against the wind together. I mean, think of the people you would go to for advice, the, the ones you would, you would trust your very life with. Have they not lived for a long time in one gap after another? Isn't that what has made them so wise and so worthy of trust? See, it's in the gap with the wind against us that God does His deepest work within us as we learn to trust in Him and as we begin to experience more deeply His intimate presence and His overcoming power. That message is throughout the Word of God. One more thought. Did you notice that when Jesus got in the boat, the struggle ceased? And did you also notice that Jesus was going to pass by his disciples until they cried out? Well, I believe there are people here today who are weary rowing against the wind. Weary of living in one God-ordained gap after another. And I will confess, I am one of them. But after more than 60 years of life with God, I do not expect to be getting out of the gap for some time yet. So I will not promise you that God will cause your personal gap or this church's gaps, or our country's gaps, to close in the next days, or months, or even years. But I can say this with all confidence. It makes a world of difference when Jesus gets in your boat. And I, for one, need Jesus in my boat. I need Him there, by my side, every moment of every day. I need Him today. How about you? Would you take a moment in this hour to invite Jesus into your boat again? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we acknowledge Your wisdom, Your sovereign control of the events of men and nations and of our lives. And though we do not understand how it works out specifically, and we must confess there so many times that we do not like what we experience, nevertheless, we we hand the control of our lives back to You. And we pray that You would be in our boat and that even when it feels like You're not, we would know that You are up on that mountainside with Your Father in complete control.
Do your work within us, whatever that is, so that we would become like you. In your name we pray. Amen.